Hi, good morning. It's good to be home. It really is. <clears throat> I don't know if you can imagine me just for two whole weeks being a beachcomber, um, <clears throat> just wearing a, a pair of uh, swimming trunks the whole time. It's about it. occasionally a t-shirt and sometimes some flip-flops. So, uh, What I want to share with you this morning grew out of my experience on vacation, and in particular, uh, some frustration and discouragement. I, I, over a series of time, it's very important that you don't think my vacation was ruined, but over a period of time, over in a cumulative way, kind of over two weeks, um, then one morning it just kind of overcame me, caught up with me, so to speak, took me by surprise. And I was rattled and discouraged. And it was at that point that God's grace centered me, comforted me, and challenged me in Jesus Christ. And that's, in a sense, the emphasis of this message you know, there's a lot I can't do in this world, but I can love God and I can love my neighbor the way God loves me. And that's because of God's grace. And that's why we've got to get back to grace. And that's what this message is about, getting back to grace. And so with that in mind, I would like us uh, to turn to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9 and 10. And then I also want to read Titus chapter 2, verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And these both basically make the same important point. Let me begin with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship in Christ, uh, pardon me, workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Well, let me begin with some of the specifics of what happened. And, and again, I want to emphasize this was toward the end of vacation that it finally kind of hit me. It, it started the first day. Shelley, uh, we were you know, we fly from here to L.A. and then over to the island of Maui. And uh, somewhere along the way, Shelly lost her iPad. I realized 
you may not have an iPad. But when you lose your iPad, it's traumatic. She lost her iPad. We dealt with that. Move on. Then, just uh, that, at the end of the week, we got the news that Matthew Warren committed suicide, Pastor Rick Warren's son. And that hit us deeply. And so, another little thing, you know, to pray about, to address. Then, in the midst of the next week, it was really breaking. The trial had already started, but it really broke with a USA Today article uh, posted by Kirsten Powers on the Kermit Gosnell uh, trial. I don't know if any of you are following that, but that. I, so I'm following that, and that just, that was, that's heavy. Um, I, I, I can't even talk about it. And then Suzanne, Shelley's sister, two days later, um, she didn't even want to tell Shelley, but Shelley could hear it in her voice, and Shelley um, learned from Suzanne that Suzanne's cancer had recurred, and this after mastectomies and two bouts with cancer already, and, and that, that moved us deeply. And then the Boston Marathon uh, bombing, and all of that, and then the West Central Texas fertilizer explosion. But it, you know, that, it was kind of a mounting cluster of mixed emotions. And I'm not trying to draw attention myself. I'm trying to draw you into maybe a similar experience where, where things have kind of caught you and overtaken you and maybe knocked you a little out of whack. But despite these mixed and volatile emotions, um, there was nothing dangerous about them. Until... Something else triggered them, and that was the media. And this too was kind of, I, I can't say this is just a, uh, you know, this and then this and then this and then this. It was all happening along at the same time. I'm reading these articles, I'm, things are mounting, but I, I, you know, I'm kind of a news hound, and, and I'm all over the, 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 the web and tweeting and Facebook, and so I'm catching stuff from different, I'm reading articles, I'm reading the comments section, and, and it, it, it wasn't just the talking heads, it was, it was Facebook, and it was Twitter, and it was the comment section of every web-posted news article, opinion piece, and blog. Now, do some of you know what I'm talking about? It doesn't matter what the article, it can be a straight news piece, or it can be um, an editorial opinion, but at the bottom it gives you a chance to write comments. And no matter how inspiring or straightforward the article is, oftentimes people write comments. And sometimes if the piece is of great interest, you get a lot of comments. And I got to tell you, um, well, it's as if, it's as Eric Leftblad said, the comment sections is where hope goes to die. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And so, the emotional mixture of all these things going on, and then reading the way people are responding, hearing people talking about it, seeing people posting things about it, and I'll tell you, 
it got the best of me. The haters and the blamers and the contempt for civility and courtesy and the atheistic derision of anything, anything religious or sacred or having the aroma of God. And I want you to understand, here's, I'm getting to this point. It wasn't so much the criminals. It wasn't so much the calamities. It was the culture. It was the culture. And I haven't been, I haven't had my head buried in the sand about our culture. But it just, it hit me in, in a powerful, powerful way. And I was troubled. And I was discouraged. Not so much for myself. I suppose I could, you know, I, I could, I'm, I'm fine. I, it's about others anyway. You know, I could look at it rather selfishly and just, but that's, that's not the way I'm built. That's not the way I'm created in Christ. That's not the nature of the grace of God in my life. I began to think about others. I think about you. Think about the church in America. Think about our children. Think about our generation and the next generation. That's what began to hurt that this because this culture, it was like visiting a neighborhood in which I grew up and finding that it had changed so much that I wasn't familiar with it anymore. I didn't recognize it anymore. And I, and I was thinking a lot about how the culture nurtures us and changes us and influences us. And I thought, wow, our culture isn't even conducive to the gospel anymore. Grace, the heart of the gospel is so removed from the direction the culture is going. that it just, it really, it was depressing. And, and to personalize it in a real powerful way, for, at least for me, is I think about my, my grandchildren. Then I think about little ones. And I think, will they, will they come to know Jesus, the Jesus I know? Will their hearts be changed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ? Will they become the beautiful people that, in a sense, will become the harbingers for the next generation, the light unto the next generation of the gospel that has meant so much to me. I almost felt like they won't have the same chance. And it was into this that I kind of got my balance that I, because it's there right in the midst of this that the grace of God caught my attention. The heart of the gospel caught my attention. The love of God caught my attention. I mean, sometimes we have to be reminded about the things we believe. The things that are precious to us. You know, we have to ping off of these things. I love that expression. It came to me, <laughs> you hear me say it 
But you know, I think of a ship that operates in the dark or a plane. They, you know, they use radar, right? Don't they? And, and, and I think they do. Well, okay, let's go for a submarine. Submarines, <laughs> they use radar and they ping off of things. That's the way that, I don't understand all the technicalities, but it sends out signals and they bounce back and it tells you where you are and you navigate. Well, listen, if we're just pinging off this world, you're going to end up just like I did on that day. Frustrated, discouraged, feeling a creeping hopelessness. And then I pinged off the Lord. I pinged off of Jesus. I pinged off the grace of God. And I found myself centered and encouraged. I found myself comforted. And I also found myself challenged. And that's the message this morning. To get back to grace. To recover grace. There are lots of ways we can talk about it. And it's important. I've been reading a book by uh, George Weigel, Evangelical Catholicism. He talks about our culture, that neighborhood I grew up in. He says, in our past, the church was comfortable because it fit neatly within the ambient public culture. There was little chafing between one's life in the church and one's life in the world. That's a church that feeds off of a milky gospel that feeds mostly off the culture that filters the gospel, filters the grace of God. I was, you know, we've got to so get the grace of God that we stand out in our culture glaringly even as grace is the glaring hallmark of the gospel, of Christianity. Another thing that I am concerned about is, is not only the way we have rubbed comfortably with the culture without any abrasion or discomfort. The other thing is the reception. And, and here I'm not thinking so much of an easygoing middle-class church, but I'm thinking of this generation, this world in which we live, and their chance to receive and to see and to witness and to experience this grace, this grace that is the gospel. And I thought of the sower who sows. You know the parable, the sower went out to sow and he sowed generously. Jesus told this parable and the seed fell. Some of it fell on the rocks, some of it fell on the way, some of it fell on good soil. In the parable, the birds, the withering sun, the thorns, they combine to peck, to scorch, and to choke the seed. Not everybody gets it. Jesus says the devil's at work. And he stays contemporary. He continues to battle the grace of God because it is the glaring distinctive of the gospel. 
And although birds and scorching sun and thorns were metaphors for its time, he uses texting and tweeting and posting. He uses comment sections. He uses television. He uses music to dispirit and discourage and to draw us away from the grace of God. And we've got to get back. We've got to be rooted. We've got to be centered, comforted, and challenged by this grace if we are to glow in this culture in a way that alerts them to the grace that's transformed us. C.S. Lewis, I ran across this quote the other day. I'd heard it before. He says, speaking of our children, he says, since it's so likely children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. We are the brave knights of the gospel. We are the ones with heroic courage. That may sound like purple prose to you, but I'm dead serious. It is grace. It is grace that transforms us, that raises us up, that fills us with the very heart of God, with the very fuel of the gospel. It is grace that gives us courage. It is grace that calls us and causes us to enter the fray and make a difference in this world. Otherwise, like me on a Hawaiian island, I would have just withdrawn. I would have just stepped back and said, that's somebody else's problem. That doesn't concern me. It might discourage me, but it doesn't concern me. And you know what? I wouldn't have had anything guiding me either, but I got up and I was fueled by that grace. Not only was I centered and comforted, I was challenged by it. It gave me focus and direction, not just for some stormy battle in the future, but moment by moment living. It is that grace that calls us to be different wherever we are because of our identity in Jesus Christ. Grace is really everything. I'm reminded of that British conference. You've probably heard this. It's a story told about C.S. Lewis. There was a conference probably there at Oxford. It was a conference dedicated to answering the question of what makes Christianity unique among the world religions. And they had all these different sessions and they were holding this, ses this session about Christianity when C.S. Lewis entered. It, it was ongoing. The debate was, was long-winded at that point. He said, what do you, you know, what, what's the subject? What's the topic? And they told him, and he said, oh, the answer to that is easy. It's grace. And after some time, they agreed. The Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. Unconditional. So yes, God led me back to His grace. And that's really the theme. 
Grace is a big topic, and I want to focus in on some key things, and I hope motivate you, but there are a couple of books I would really commend to you because these two books, I think they will cost you some money, cost you some time, but reward you richly, and they will center you, comfort you, and encourage you, so I commend them to you. I'll leave them up there just a moment, moments up. Philip Yancey, whatever happened to grace, or whatever, be, what, what's so amazing about grace? Philip Yancey, what's so amazing about grace? And Max Lucado, grace. Main point, get back to grace. God's grace centers us, it comforts us, and challenges us. When I look at how God expresses himself to us in grace, I think of Les Miserables. How many of you have seen the movie or read the book? Oh, quite a few of you. I'm glad to hear that. Really, the cornerstone of the book is, is the grace of God. The whole book is built on the grace of God. The movie, which Shelley and I went and saw, uh, starts with Jean Valjean. He's been in prison, hard labor, 19 years. Why is he in prison? He stole a loaf of bread. They were dire times. His sister and her children were starving. He stole a loaf of bread. He was caught and went to prison. Nineteen years later, he's out. And it's at that point that the movie basically begins. But he can't catch a break. Much like a felon today, it's hard to get a job. It's hard to be received once they find out what your past is. It looms. And it changes the way people see you. And so he became frustrated and bitter. But he finally is welcomed into the home of a monsignor, a priest, a bishop named Muriel. He doesn't have much. But his home is full of the love of Christ along with his two sisters. It is there that Valjean is welcomed. Of the few things he has, some silverware, a ladle, two silver candlesticks, and a lot of love. They feed Valjean. They give him a bed. And it's during the night, a night of sound sleep, that Valjean wakens, gets up, goes through the house and steals the silverware and the ladle and makes his way into the night. But he's quickly caught. The gendarmes see this suspicious man. And where did this come from? This silverware that he's carrying. They took it to the house of Muriel. And once the gendarme exposed what was in the bag... Valjean uh, is surprised because Muriel steps forward before the gendarme can even finish his explanation and he says, Valjean, it's so good to see you. You went off and left the silver candlesticks. Talks about, you don't have to come in through the garden. Our front door is always open. It's unlocked and welcome. You're, You're a brother here. And after dismissing the gendarme, 
That's a policeman. It's about all the French I know. He draws near to Valjean and he says to Valjean, My brother, you no longer belong to evil but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition and I give it to God. What we don't always realize is that that act of grace is built on the gospel. When you pick up the book, the book by Victor Hugo, the basis of the story of uh, the movies and the musical, you start with Valjean, but the book starts with Muriel. Fourteen chapters describing the heart of this man who's devoted his life to God. I posted some of the remarks on my uh, Facebook page about Muriel, but one thing that sticks is says he didn't study God. He was bedazzled by God. He is portrayed in these 14 chapters as a man who has truly been changed by the grace of God. And that grace, it just emanates out of his life. His, his outlook on everything is shaped and influenced by the grace of God. And we see it displayed in the treatment of Valjean. And it is the treatment of Valjean, the grace shown to Valjean, that changes him and becomes the source of the whole story. Valjean continues to conceal his past. But because of the man he is, he's made the mayor of a town. He starts a business that thrives and he hires poor people and takes care of the less fortunate. A woman who's dying, he takes care of her. And when she dies, he raises her daughter. His life is a life expressing the grace that he had been shown by Muriel, the grace of God. And when Muriel, the priest, said to Valjean, you belong to God now. He's, you've been bought. You've got to use this for good. Valjean had a choice, just as you and I have a choice. We're Valjeans to give out of the abundance of what God in grace has given us. It's amazing that Muriel is described as Pastor Bievenu, Priest Bievenu, Monsignor Bievenu. Bievenu means welcome. It means reception. It means acceptance. He's also called Pastor Benevolence. Monsignor benevolence, which is kindness and charity and grace and goodness. That has to be the cornerstone of our lives. 
It is if the gospel is at the heart of who we are. Because at the heart of the gospel is grace. That's what makes it good news. And at, a, at the heart of God's grace is Jesus Christ. Grace centers me and it centers us. Because we find our true identity. We find who we are in the grace of God, in the gospel, in the person of Jesus Christ. We lose ourselves. We lose our past. And we find it in Jesus Christ. Because we cannot live and thrive in Him if we aren't given to Him because of His grace. Otherwise, we get in the way. Our past continues to shape our future. That's what this sermon is all about. That's what grace is all about. Grace orients me. It gives me my bearings. It tells me how to see God and how to see others, even how to see myself. Grace changes everything. That's why it centers us. It, it shares, so to speak, with us as we ping off of it how to treat the person next to us, how to treat our neighbors, how to treat our family, our wife, our husband, our children. It tells us how to see people, act toward them in the classroom, on the playground. When we're driving, at work, in each and every situation, we're people of grace. We are His workmanship of grace because we are created in Christ Jesus. It centers us because of that. And that's why in verse 8 we're told that it is not, that our salvation is by grace. Salvation by grace. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift. That's the meaning of grace. It not only centers us in the person, but it comforts us. We're told it's not a result of works. That anyone should boast. It's a gift, not a result of works. The power of grace is that it's in Him. His grace, His salvation, His love. It's not because of who I am, it's because of who He is. That is comforting to me. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, While we were yet sinners... God demonstrate his love toward us while we were yet sinners. That's the nature of grace. I'm very aware of my sinfulness. It is his grace that causes me to aspire to the greatest things in my life. And some of the greatest things have to do with loving others. I mean, it's always there. It's always about other people. Anything we do is about really others. But the fact that it's grace is what qualifies us 
It's not what we accomplish, it's what He's accomplished, which allows us to let go of our past and to love as He has loved us, forgive as He has forgiven us, care for others as He has cared for us. Desmond Tutu wrote, We may be surprised at the people we find in heaven. God has a soft spot for sinners. His standards are quite low. That includes me, and it includes you. We haven't forgotten that, have we? I understand what Desmond Tutu has said, and it touches me because it does include me. But there's something we have to understand. It's not because God's standards are quite low. It's actually because they are very, very high. You see, no one can meet his standard. That's why he had to meet that standard in the person of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. That's something you and I can never meet. It took the son, the perfect son, the pure son, the sinless son, the pure Lamb of God who went to the cross, who sacrificed His life for me and for you. That's the standard that had to be met. But that encourages me, that comforts me because it isn't dependent on me and it's not dependent upon you. It's a standard we can't meet. But it also shows us that forgiveness is not the end game. It's a relationship with the one who loved us so much. It's a relationship with him who overcame every barrier, even the standard that could not be met to win our hearts and reach us with his grace. No matter where I am on a map or in my heart, I can turn to God. And I know that he is immediate to me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what He has done in Jesus Christ. But it's all of grace. And it is that grace which not only is the shaper of our identity in Jesus Christ and the comforter of our hearts, no matter where we are or where we're at, but it is that which challenges us Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works. That's grace. Max Lucado asks some questions that I think help us to get at grace. He asks, doesn't someone owe you an apology? And I answered, yes. Doesn't someone owe you a second chance? And I said, yes, again. An explanation. Doesn't someone owe you an explanation? Yes. Doesn't someone owe you a thank you? Yes. A marriage? Some of us think we're owed a marriage because maybe our marriage isn't what it should be. And we're looking to our partner to make it the marriage it ought to be. 
or a childhood, he asks. Some of us think we were robbed of our childhood. He goes on to ask more questions. Your parents should have been more protective, shouldn't they? Your children should have been more appreciative, shouldn't they? Your spouse should be more sensitive, shouldn't she or shouldn't he? What are you going to do? He says, few questions are more important. Dealing with debt. And that's what it is, isn't it? Are we debt accumulators? Are we dealing with debt? He says, dealing with debt at the, is at the heart of our happiness. It's at the heart of our joy. It's at the heart of who we are. And that's where the grace of God comes in because when we realize the debt that he has dealt with at the cross in his own person, at his own expense, grace is free to us, but it is costly. Someone has to foot the bill. Someone always foots the bill for grace. And it begins with God and Jesus Christ. Jesus told a parable to illustrate this, told the parable of a king who was settling accounts. And he had some outstand, he had a servant that had an outstanding debt. So he called the servant in. And the debt owed, the, the servant owed 10,000 talents of silver, an extraordinary amount, an amount a servant few could ever pay. And that was the point. It was a preposterous amount. But it's the point of the illustration. Because we are to identify with the servant. He owed the king an amount he couldn't repay. For us, it would be well over $10 million. And he begins to beg the king. He says, I'll repay you. Just give me time. And he, he appeals to his mercy, to his pity. And he says, I have a wife and children. He begins to weep and grovel on the ground. And the king does have pity. He withholds punishment. He withholds his anger and shows grace demonstrated in the mercy, you see, of withholding to this servant. He says, get up. He says, I'm going to forgive the debt. I'm going to cancel it. And he tears it up. And the servant goes out Jesus says, and he meets a fellow servant, a peer, someone who's just like him. He owes about 25 bucks. And the servant who has just been forgiven a debt that he could never repay says, pay up now or I'm going to throw you in prison. And that servant to the forgiven servant, begins to grovel and weep and appeal to his pity. He says, I'll pay it back. Just give me time. Don't throw me in prison. I have a wife and I have children. This is all in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. But the servant has no mercy, no grace in his heart, no forgiveness, no willingness to look beyond the fault to meet the need. No willingness to look beyond this man's debt. And so he has him thrown in prison. And the king hears about it. 
the king who had forgiven this huge debt, and he calls that servant back in. And he says, you are a mean-spirited weasel. You are an ugly person. Where is your grace? Did forgiving you a debt you couldn't repay have no effect upon you? No, didn't it change your heart? Didn't it touch your soul? Didn't it cause you to go out of here and be generous likewise with whatever you have to give? Didn't it cause you to look at people differently? What happened to you? Nothing. And because nothing happened to you, to prison you will go. That's what he says. My version. Obviously, huh? That's what he did. He threw him in prison. And, he, and then Jesus told the purpose of the parable. And I just told it to you. He said, if you don't forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. And that troubles us, doesn't it? We think of grace as something that we can treasure and not a personal relationship. Something that we can hide away. Maybe a magic amulet that will protect us when, you know, when it comes to judgment. We just hold it up there. I'm exempt. That's when we hoard grace. That's, that's what happens when grace comes to us and we just, like a squirrel, we hoard it back into our hole. We don't share. It doesn't change us. We use it for our selfish purposes. And I, I, there's a transaction. It's not just bookkeeping that is meant to happen here. This is, this is the impact of the gospel when God gets a hold of us with his love, when we personalize it. The last words tell the tale. In verse 35, Jesus says, when you do not forgive from your heart. This gospel isn't a head thing. It's not just so much facts. It changes us. Jesus told another parable in Luke chapter 7. When uh, he went to the house of Simon, it was a big fanfare. And in the house... A woman came in to Jesus. Simon is an august religious leader. And this woman cried on Jesus' feet, poured costly ointment on them, and wept the feet with her hair. And Simon looked upon her in contempt, disgust, anger. He looked down on her. In fact, he said, if Jesus knew who this woman was, he wouldn't, a teacher, a prophet, someone like Jesus wouldn't let her do that. And Jesus turned to Simon, he says, can I tell you a, sh a little story? He said, there was a, a money lender. He lent to one person who needed money, uh, the amount of 500 and to another 50. But then the time came to settle the accounts. Simon when that time came, both could not pay. The one who owed 500 
and the one who owed 50. But the moneylender canceled both debts. Simon, who loved more? The one who was forgiven 500 or the one who was forgiven 50? And Simon was no dummy. He said, the one who is forgiven 500. When we know who we really are, see who we really are, understand who we really are, we're forgiven so much, a debt we could not repay, that when we begin to calculate and appreciate what God has done for us in Jesus, it changes everything. And we realize that there are things that are just incompatible with grace. Things like pride. Where there's grace, pride becomes humility. Things like contempt. Where there's grace, contempt becomes mercy. Despair even changes. Because where there's grace, despair becomes hope. To accept his grace is to accept the vow to give it. And it expresses itself in gratitude. You know, C.S. Lewis, I'll just stop with this. In Mere Christianity, he took up the subject of the idea of hating the sinner, uh, hating the sin and not the sinner. And I've really heard that poo-pooed a lot. So I was interested in C.S.'s dealing with that because he himself at wondered how can you hate what someone does without hating the someone and Lewis could never understand the hair splitting distinction but years later he writes it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I have been doing this all my life me however much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed I go on loving myself There'd never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things that I loved was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man that did those things. Don't you think we could turn that toward others? Jesus said it was the second great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You stand with me. Listen, I uh, I hope you'll be pondering and pinging off of the grace of God. It really does center us in our sense of identity in Jesus Christ. That old adage, "What would Jesus do?" really does work. And it's all of grace. Grace is the means of change. And it comforts us. Because we realize God has changed us. But it also challenges us. I am concerned about a world in which they don't see the grace of God in all its power. Because perhaps we're too wedded to our culture. The litmus test for us is in our own homes, for some of us, out there when we're driving, when we're shopping in the supermarket, when we're dealing maybe with a stubborn high-maintenance 
ordinary person, maybe in our own family or circle of friends. I could go on. But if we're being challenged by those in our own strength and not handling it in the grace of God, we're missing an opportunity to be a Muriel in a world that needs Valjeans. I'm going to pray for us. And when I close, if you'd like to come forward for prayer, if you don't know the Jesus of the gospel, or as we've contemplated God's grace, your mind has traveled to the needs of another and you'd like to pray about that, we invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. Thank you for such love. And Father, may it so capture our hearts today and every day that we become Christ-like in all we say we and do. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all of God's people said,